Welcome to the Heroes of Reality podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Do you want to know what it takes to design a AAA level high quality game? Well, on today's podcast, I have Alexander Brazi. He is a global design director and gamification consultant. With over 16 years, Alex has been working within the game industry as a designer, project leader, and head of learning and development for game designers who want to make master their craft. <laughs> His game combat and game system design experiences include work on World of Warcraft, League of Legends, Ori, and the Will of the Wisps, and two unannounced AAA projects. Maybe he'll announce them on this podcast. Who knows? Or major studios. So without any delay, I'd like to welcome... Alexander. Hey, how's it going today, Dylan? <laughs> doing good. Okay, tell me what the shit, what are you doing? What are you releasing? Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> one of them is under NDA, so I can't really talk about it. We'll say that I spent oh, five years NDAs. working on it, and it is by far the best combat I've ever built with a really yeah. awesome set of team members and uh, plenty of drama to go with. So when it comes out, I'm sure I'd love to jump on and talk to you about it again. Oh, man, yeah. Um, the other one, though, I can actually talk about is oh. actually a project called Snack Pass. Uh, Snack Pass is uh, basically a food service app that's available at places like Berkeley, Stanford, Harvard, and so on. Uh, and we actually built a system for helping people connect with others on their campus where we actually made it so let's say let's say you and I are friends like uh -huh. like I'm buying you a donut or okay. a boba or something okay. and uh, if we buy five of those for each other we get like a little chicken like a little tamagotchi that we raised together and it was incredibly successful a total wild project most adorable little thing i've ever worked on and that's live now <laughs> that's cool man uh, so yeah, we're uh, we're raising food babies together yeah exactly um, you'd be surprised uh, the the motto of the uh, project, which was all about food and food with friends, became yeah. food, friends, and flirting after that project went live. Because <laughs> so many people would like send little cute emotes through the system to their lovers. So that's beautiful. Yeah. One of the new language is emojis though, too. You notice that we we we've been able to, we've gone you know from hieroglyphs to language to words back to emoji hieroglyphs again. So I mean it makes that's sense. True. You know? Yeah, I remember the very first time someone asked me what my emoji was, and actually it was it's my the girl who's now my assistant, uh, Leslie, uh -huh. and she's like, "What do you mean uh, you don't know what emoji is?" I'm like, "I have no clue what an emoji is." And she says, "All right, I'm picking one for you," and sent me a yellow lightning bolt. So like, next time anyone asks, just say it's this one. I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> That's so fun, man. I was still on a flip phone back then; it could barely render the thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I I remember the pagers back in the day where you could try to spell out words, you know, like one four three is like "I love you" and that kind of stuff, and so. Uh -huh. You know, we're getting, we're getting, we're getting better. You know, technology's moving oh, yeah. along. Do you, remember, do you remember when you always send a rose and it was an at symbol, the uh, angle brace, this, an upper slash, and then a bunch of dashes? Dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of, a lot of creativity goes into that. You know, they say uh, uh, creativity needs constraints. You know, I felt like we had a lot of creativity back in the day because of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, there's a wonderful book I read. It's called uh, A Beautiful Constraint. And it talks all about um, how businesses or projects succeed or, or solve problems that people thought were insurmountable because they acknowledged the constraints they were under that others didn't. Mm. Yeah. yeah, well, and that's, I mean, you, you, when you bring up a little earlier point, you're talking about you had a beautiful game come out. And not mm. only that, there was a bunch of conflict that happens 
right? And I think in the world of design, one of the big things that happens when, you, when you're under these constraints is that it's very hard, you know, programming is kind of zeros and ones. You make something happen, you put it into place. But I think with design, not knowing your constraints and not knowing what it is, sometimes you can get into conflict with people when you're trying to figure out what you need to do and how you make things happen and how do you make your decisions? Cause you, you're talking about these things. It's not, it's not a simple process. And I'd love for you, I'd love for you to uh, simply communicate how you handle that. Oh, I'd love to do that. Um, so let's start out with the beginning of the creative process, right? And I call it the tyranny of the blank page, right? Which says there's an empty space in front of you and you have a pencil. Mm -hmm. Anything can go on that page. And something I think you and I talked about, right, is what you will do with the same tools, a pencil and a piece of paper is different from the tools that I do, right? Um, but uh, the interesting thing about a blank page is because it has all promise and no constraints, it, 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 it's paralyzing. You don't know, do I do a full-size portrait? Am I going to do something else? But let's say you just sit down and you put four rectangles on the screen. And you're like, all right, one, two, three, four. Now you have an order. Now you know you need to communicate something. Are they going to be comparisons with each other? Are they going to be sequential, right? And as you go through those steps and narrow down what you're creating, you lead yourself into ideas, right? Um, and design work is very similar, right? Uh, if you and I, let's um, let's make a game right now. Um, if I was to say, Dylan, um, we're going to make a new game. Uh, you know, what do you want to make? You could literally go anywhere. But if I mm -hmm. say, hey, we're going to make a game um, that your little sister can play um, uh, without ever having to go online with one friend in person, mm. where would that lead you? Right. The, immediately those constraints have guided you to a place in your mind, something you've envisioned, mm. tell me what you've envisioned. Yeah. I pictured, uh, my little imaginary sister to yep. be around a board game with a friend looking down at something collaboratively together where they're both trying to figure out something that could be a puzzle or that could be some sort of event, but they're looking at some sort of place where they're cooperatively working together to uh, get past some sort of barrier. Yeah. And now we've established not only uh, a potential medium, right? Board mm -hmm. game, but we've also established that we want this to be cooperative, right? I, let's say, let's say I agree. Let, let's make this cooperative. And I'm like, well, let's see if we want the end. What do I want the end result of this game to be? It could be friction and tension, right? Ah, oh, angry at each other. That, that doesn't really emotionally work with cooperative, right? What if instead it's, they walk away with a creation of some kind. Um, mm -hmm. I'm gonna spoil things. I've been working on that, wait, which finger? There we go. Mm -hmm. This Lego guy, right, for the past couple of days. Let's say at the end of the, um, the session, I want your sister and her friend to walk away with something they've built together, right? So maybe one of the byproducts is it'll be a house in the end, right? Mm -hmm. Or something that they create with Legos together. Um, where would you take that? Right? Let me throw the ball back to you, right? So I've said, all right, we're going to use Legos as part of this board game. Okay. Yeah. So then what I would imagine then is almost like maybe some sort of constructive 3D puzzle set where you're given X amount of pieces and a certain shape, and it's your job to figure out how these pieces stack together to make the shape of a house. So oh, then you... So you have the initial pieces, the atomized pieces, and mm -hmm. you have the final hole, and then you have to creatively get from point A to point B with your friend. Oh, that's pretty cool. Okay, so now we're building a structure and a space. Maybe mm -hmm. maybe then the game is uh, they deal a random set of cards that are steps that a little Lego figure will, there's a starting square that is always mm -hmm. the same on the board and an mm -hmm. ending square. And mm -hmm. they have to follow the instructions given by the cards. Might be up, left, left, up, up, right, right. And whatever they build has to be built around the path that was randomly dealt from these cards. 
And so they can build whatever they want, but they have to be able to pass the test of the cards to get out of that room to the next Ooh, that almost what's triggering for me when you're talking about that is almost like a Tetris style house building cooperative game. Yeah. So as the pieces get dropped down in front of them, they have to creatively work and assemble when they get a, a certain amount of strategic amount of moves to be able to then assemble and orient them as needed in a given amount of time. So now you have the time pressure Ooh. along with the elements of the cooperative co-building. Oh man, that's really cool. What if, now let's say we wanted to, let's say we suddenly had a third brother, right? You okay. got your brother and a sister. And the, oh. Well, the brother wants to like be kind of an agent of chaos in here. Maybe <laughs> he gets to choose where the piece will be dropped in mm. over the board. And then they get to apply a certain number of rotations or transformations oh. on where the wall is going to be dropped, right? With the goal that they have to keep in mind is you have to be able to walk from left side to the right side. And he's trying to mess it up. And they're trying to like, well, we're going to use this card and this card and keep it from going, right? Ooh. Um, that's a game I don't think I've ever heard of any game like that before, <laughs> ever, right? Like, in just three minutes, right? Yeah. We we set a constraint, we talked about some goals, we talked about ways of creating a pattern for the core players to play through that's interesting mm. and engaging, and then uh, some ways of throwing chaos into the mix, right? There you go. Um, let's just break down what we really did, okay? Sure. Um, now, in this case, we didn't have any any conflict, right? Because I didn't want to make it difficult, right? I didn't want to argue sure. with it over something, right? But but it's because you know this is actually a good case. Well, we set out a framework, right? Something mm -hmm. we both agreed in. That's the general space that we're in. We then established goals, right? We talked about methodology for how players will interact with the game, and lastly, we talked about the details of how we would execute against that, right? Mm. If you go through that process and align with the other people you're working on. These are our goals. This is, what, this is generally what we're making. These are our goals. This is what's important. And this is, and lastly, how we will do it. You can work through a whole lot of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Most conflict occurs when one person is on the what and another person is on the goals. Or someone is, is like, is, agrees with the goals but disagrees on how you will prioritize things. Mm. So it's about setting an intention, priming them with saying, okay, this is this is the process. These yeah. are the steps. These are the steps we all agree on. Do we all agree that we're here at this process steps? We understand that we're we're at step A and we need to get to step B. Great. Mm -hmm. So now the constraints for the meeting is let's all discuss on options from getting from point A to point B because now we're aligned versus someone's thinking about imagining steps C and D while other guys kind of tragically, practically, tactically trying to build A to B. And then there's conflict because they feel like they're not being able to communicate with each other. Both of them are not hearing each other out. Yeah. And it's like, if you're talking about, hey, if we both agree, we want to make a board game, but mm -hmm. you think we need to be a competitive game. And yeah. I think it needs to be a cooperative game. We need to have a goals leveled discussion first. We need to decide which of these is it going to be and resolve that. Mm -hmm. And whereas if instead I'm saying, hey, these cards seem like they suck. It's like destroy another player's card, right? I'm like this doesn't work for a cooperative game. If you're like, that's amazing, right? Well, we can't talk about whether that card is amazing or not amazing. If we're not aligned on the goals, yeah. we don't have the same mission going yeah. in the same direction. We can't just, we can't evaluate if something is good. Okay, can I go on a little rant here real yeah. quick? Rant away. Right. I wanna say that there is nothing worse, all right, than using the words good, bad, evil, right, and wrong when it comes to discussions like this, okay? And here's why. When you use good and bad, right or wrong, you are presuming that all participants in a discussion have the same moral framework, 
had the same priorities, had the same opinions, and the same weighting, right? And relative level of importance against those opinions, right? And that means you're not having the real discussion. If I say, hey, removing this card encourages the cooperative nature of this game, and you're like, no, removing the, this card undermines the competitive nature of this game, right? We can both be true. We can then, it then reveals what we're optimizing for. You wanted more competition, I want more cooperation. And then we can realize where the discussion we need to have is. If I say this is good and this is bad, and you're like, no, this is good and this is bad, it's a useless conversation. Whenever someone says down and this says, this is good, that's only helpful if everyone's already agreed on the other things. So use adjectives. Adjectives are beautiful, right? They allow us to describe what we're optimizing for, what we're trying to solve for. And let's be honest, people like pretty words too. <laughs> That's beautiful. And what I'm thinking about is almost like a, a, a funnel for effectiveness in terms of like, okay, what's the mission? What are the, what's the strategy? What's the, what's the tactics and what are our current steps? And if exactly. we get that alignment as we're going down that, then we can then take those steps forward. And then we go, okay, well, that's not the strategy or whatever the thing might be. And then you start talking about them. They say, oh, we're, we're optimizing for different effects. That's, that's fantastic. There you go. When there you go. Now you know how to resolve all the conflicts you'll ever have the rest yeah, of your oh, life. Congratulations. Forever, forever. Forever. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Humanity has been solved. All right, I'm done my job here today. <laughs> the, all of wars have ended thanks to Alexander. So if you, okay, so let me ask you a question here. You, you did a great job at breaking those constraints and looking at those different areas. Hmm. What I want to look at is this, is when you're looking to create human behavior, right? To uh, looking at things when you gamification, it's a, it's a broad word, right? But it's a, it's a drivers for human behavior, right? Getting people to take action, feel a feeling, do a thing, right? right? What are some of the core elements that you're looking at when it comes to driving human behavior for gamification? What do you think about? Cause you threw an, Oh, I'm gonna throw in a chaos bomb. I'm gonna throw in these things. What for when your mind goes to things, what is the, what is, what's going through your head when you're thinking about those different elements? All right, so uh, I'm gonna use the framework that I think you might recognize here, which is mm. that uh, whenever I look at any individual decision, I go through five steps. Mm. Um, is it clear, right? Do they get it when they just interact with it? Uh, is, is it motivating? Is it, do they care about it, right? Is there something about it that's relevant to them and their interests? And I'll go a little deeper in each of these. Next is, do they have a response to it at either an emotional, physical, or intellectual level? And then, um, you know, is that once they take a response to it, right, in one of those categories, is it satisfying, right? Is, or is it dissatisfying if they take the wrong answer, right? The one that isn't the path you want them to take. Um, and then lastly, uh, does it all make sense for the context you're in, right? And I just run real quick through those five things. Those are the first things that go through my head in any individual decision. Now, at a larger scale, right, um, I like to start with this thing, right? A lot of people ask, how do I motivate people? How do I motivate people? Motivate, motivate, motivate. Well, here's the real truth. Everyone already comes to the table with motivations, right? It doesn't matter whether you're a designer creating a game, a colleague working with a coworker, um, a boss starting a new company for a whole bunch of clients, right? You need to connect fundamentally uh, with what their goals are and how this experience enhances, improves uh, their journey to the end state they want to get to, right? You talk about this hero's journey, mm -hmm. it's true. And sometimes the hero's journey is um, 
I ship a new product. Sometimes the hero's journey is I get out of bed and I just get to work, right? Sometimes the hero's journey is I overcome uh, a crippling, you know, struggle in my life. Sometimes it's, um, you know, create a brand new product and transform the world, you know, iPhone style. Um, and all of those only happen if there's something people wanted and you help them bridge that, right? And so if you can achieve other orientation, and now there's a whole, I want to talk about something real quick because it's an important framework to keep in mind. A lot of people look at this world as people who are independent and people who are, you know, dependent, right? And the world isn't that clean and clear, right? I actually want people to think instead in terms of three stages. Maybe there's more, but we all start out dependent on others, right? We are born of human beings and utterly, you know, we will live or die based on the parents we're around, right? <clears throat> utterly dependent. And we grow into independence, right? Where we can go on, strike out the world, survive in the forest, or go into the business world and earn money and things like that. And a lot of people just stop there. I have achieved independence. I am a done person. But, but it's not true, right? There's actually a level beyond that where you've achieved so much independence and so much strength that you can carry part of or all of the burden for another person. Now, I don't recognize, recommend carrying the whole burden for anyone ever, but think about it, right? Where you have the time, the space, the resources to help others. Maybe this looks, maybe for you, this is taking care of your family. For me, this might be reaching out to friends, right? And it's this third stage interdependence where when I have achieved enough independence that I can help someone else, and then they have achieved enough independence, or maybe they, I've helped them move from dependence to independence that now they can take on the burden for someone else, or I get weak, right? And now they can help me out. And we're now able to rely upon each other's own independence and also support each other, right? That we realize that we gain more working together than we do as a whole bunch of independent people, or obviously as a whole bunch of dependent people, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, right? And how the lives that we live are basically that journey, right? We can't do, we can do, we can then do so much we can help others. Um, it makes sense that civilization is the byproduct of that, right? And it makes sense that a lot of people who have just barely gotten from dependence to independence or are still in, are still striving for that independence, right? Are complaining about the people who aren't where they are yet because they're resenting, they feel fear or uh, frustration because it reminds them of who they were. They haven't been able to achieve that third stage where they carry others a little bit and support mm. them um, or... You know, I, I just want you to think about that, right? And think about how much of human struggle and complaint and all that is built upon where seeing the world as a bipolar instead of a triangular shape. I completely agree with that. And what I love about that is that it resonates with the hero's journey. And here's why. Mm. If you think about the hero's journey, right, there is someone who is an ordinary person in an ordinary community who gets set off on an extraordinary adventure. The extraordinary adventure allows that person to transform who they are to who they need to become to achieve the Holy Grail or whatever that might mean. Yep. Now, when they go to achieve that Holy Grail, which you're talking to going from being, you know, dependent on the community to independent on their own supernatural or yep. super intense journey, they then achieve the Holy Grail and they bring it back in which they then become the mentor for the next person along the journey who they become the aid and that circular cycle is it's yep. not necessarily like a circle it's more like a spiral upwards yeah. where the knowledge and the education and the training all that stuff leads into the growth of the next person because as we you are right we people think that we're 
individual selves and that's one side or we are connected but we are this weird mishmash of both things and we are a collective consciousness that is growing and leveling up together and that's one of the things why people love to watch the hero's journey is a story as old as time and it's something that's been retold in so many different styles and, and modalities and the reason being is because it's a story about personal evolution and transformation for the good of oneself and for the benefit of the community and if you look at that as we are basically passing this torch of knowledge and evolution through time together and like the waves of, of a of individual drops pushing that along that's what we're doing and so what i love about that is that really resonates with the hero's journey and and i and i really as i'm you know for example you went on a journey where at one point you were a beginner game designer went along a path to level up to where you are and now you're at a point where you are mentoring people along that journey in that path which is a beautiful story yeah. of evolution and then hopefully at some point the people that you teach will teach others and thus creates meaning and impact yeah um it's true right when i was 13 years old i worked with a guy uh, uh reached out to a guy named mm -hmm. uh thomas g cadwell and um you know working with him back he was just a mit student at the time we just started working on uh warcraft 3 i believe it was and I asked him questions about games and game design and how to get into it. And he just would write me back little emails periodically and consistently. And I just took a lot of that, internalized it, and then found ways to apply it on my own and then would ask him for clarification. And, you know, years later, uh, we became roommates, you know, probably when he was just gotten back from finishing his MBA after he'd worked in shipping World of Warcraft and gone on to do other stuff. And that led to him, he was actually making a game called League of Legends in his bedroom with uh, the other folks at Riot Games. And then called me in one day and said, what do you think of this? I'm like, dude, I think this is terrible. He's like, all right, tell me exactly where and why and when. And pff, we just drilled through a whole bunch of stuff. He took the feedback back. And I remember we actually sat down one day and actually invented Twisted Fate, well, a redesigned Twisted Fate a few times over a, like dinner, right? And it was one of those where I felt such a sense of, you know, value, right? Being able to bring back something useful to the person who had helped lift me up, right? And then someday later when the company did well, he reached out to me, said, help come mentor people at my company. And I did that and eventually got a chance to walk away and start my design school, you know? And, you know, I just, it's been, like I said, we stand on the shoulders of giants, right? Um, but we don't realize how giant we are, we are ourselves, except through the eyes of the people we lift up. Yeah, and one, fantastic. Two, I mean, I have fond memories of being at PC cafes, playing World of Warcraft 3, doing tower raids and blitzes into other people's yeah. base as I was with my friend. So many amazing memories and, and yeah. connections. Uh, I worked uh, on Footman Frenzy back in that day. Have you ever played Footman Frenzy? Oh, I don't yeah. know. I think I played that one. I don't know. Okay. It was, it, was, it was a game where you just generated footmen and you just had the wave after wave you had to command and micro against other players. So, <laughs> I remember that. that um, my orcs. friend Fox made it and uh, I just went in. I'm like, I want to make a hero for your character. He's like, go ahead. I made the most oh, overpowered, broken character ever. It was invisible. It hit hard. It, had, it could scale with all the stats. Of course. Of course. It's, it's, we always go all, all, way over the top with it. And uh, it was so funny because I still have like, like, like it occupies a, a, a space in my brain where I still have things like they came from behind. I have these things. <laughs> <laughs> right. They're still in my head. And, and as, and you know, as I was going through, there's, uh, you have had impacts as I did play uh warlock was my character for world of warcraft. And oh, so that's awesome. there, it was, it's so fun to see that and to see what you've created and having that, that impact along the way. And you did say something that 
I do want to touch on as well as you, you know, you talked about going through this and, and providing value back to your, your mentor along the way and being able to learn and grow. And there's something about in order for us to really feel our own personal evolution, we need to be witnessed, right? Yeah. Being witnessed by someone else, especially by a mentor and acknowledged by, you know, the atonement of the father or whatever you might want to call it. Mm -hmm. But having that thing where someone looks at you and acknowledges it, it almost gives you validation that says, oh, I have changed. And it's funny because part of us wants us to be, we're individuals. I know I'm good this thing, but, but, but deep down inside, there's a piece of us that by being witnessed by another, we can then, we can then almost feel that transformation by being validation by having that person be a mirror to who we now are. Yeah. And if there's two sides to that, right? Mm. Um, one is the you achieve the validation and you're like, that was a great hit. And you begin seeking more of those hits. The other is you hit the validation and then you learn to release it, right? You're like, oh, that was nice. But I, I'm okay. I'm okay. And like the moment afterwards, you're like, oh, I guess that moment is over. I'm stronger. I'm better. I'm better at what I do. That was nice, but I can live without that as well. And then you gain the insight into that the validation mm. while a driver is not the sustainer, that the mm. process has become the sustainer. The love of the craft becomes a sustainer, right? And yeah. then you really, then you're good to go because you love what you're doing, not loving mm. the results of what you're doing. Don't get me wrong. I love the fact that some players reach out and are like, I loved your warlock design in Pandaria. It was the best ever. Right. But I'm, but then they also like come back and save us again. And I'm like, that's not my journey anymore. Right? <laughs> um, so, you know, well, there's a thing that happens when you first get started, when you, when it's coming up for me is when you first get started, you have an identity attached to the process. Mm. Right. And as you get farther along. So for example, yes. if I make a design and I submit my design to you and you say, well, I'm going to give you some critical feedback and I wouldn't have done that. I take personal offense because when yes. I'm first getting started, I have an attachment. My identity is attached to that thing, right? Yeah. But then over time, when you are so seasoned, and mm -hmm. part of the thing, this is the flip side to that being witness thing, is that when you turn in something and goes, that's a, that's a terrible design. And you're like, well, one, I wouldn't use the judgment piece. And two, I'm not affected by it, right? There's, you have that level of detachment, but a part of it, there's a piece of you that's giving birth to that identity. And then there's a part yeah. of that thing that is let go. Uh, what are your yeah. thoughts around that? Yeah, you've nailed it, right? Um, so I remember having to, uh, I remember uh, there was this guy I met. He was um, the son of a mayor of a city, but I didn't know this at the time. And um, he himself was uh, working for the governor's office in Nevada. And my friend, I just ran in, I met him because I was visiting my business partner in mm -hmm. Las Vegas. My friend goes and says, hey, my next door neighbor has no friends. Let's go, it's his birthday. Let's go grab a milkshake with him. I'm like, of course, let's go do that, right? Yeah. out with him and interacting with him i realized really quickly that this guy was incredibly good at getting, getting insights into people looking at them understanding things and then being able to reflect it back and i'm like how do you do that and he's like well when i don't have when i let go of my own ego i see what's in front of me instead of what i need to see for me to feel reality is the way i want it to be and i realized mm. oh that's a brilliant insight right when we sit there looking for things that justify the beliefs we already have, we don't see reality as it is, right? We instead mm. see it as we either need it to be because we've been told it's that way or because it's what we want it to be, right? And again, both of those have different survival purposes. I turn to him and I'm like, how do I let go of my own ego so I can do that? And he looks at me, he's like, do you really mean that? I'm like, yeah, that, 
I've struggled with this my own life between attachment to projects and this and this and this and that, and I've suffered a lot for it, right? And I, it sounds like this is the way out, but I've not been able to succeed. And um, he turned to me and he was like, all right, let's tell you what, you don't like getting up in the mornings. If you really mean it, get up at seven in the morning tomorrow and we're gonna go to coffee and I'll talk to you for an hour. And I'm like, done, we'll do this. I wake up at 6.50, I go to message him. He doesn't get back to me until eight. And I'm like, what the fuck? And he goes, ah, life happened. I couldn't make it. I will come to Los Angeles though and hang out with you and talk to you about this. I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever, okay. Well, two months later, he sure enough did showed up and then he sat down and he's like, all right, we're going to get you started on this journey of letting go of your ego. I'm going to give you a test. You're good at mm. tests. I'm like I pass all the tests. I'm the best at tests. I'm a test winner. He's like, okay, cool. Um, well, uh, you're going to go to the beach and I'm going to give you a little mission at the beach. I'm like sounds easy. So I went to the beach and I'm like, what's the mission? He's like, cool. I want you to look at the, and um, I want you to look at the waves and I want you to make the waves stop for just a fraction of a second, like maybe a full second, go for a full second. I'm like, what? what the waves like yeah find a way to make the waves stop for a second all the waves and i'm like wow he gave me this test it must be for a reason so i sat down and i'm like okay well let me just try it sheer willpower right i know it doesn't work but whatever. <laughs> willpower waves stop it stop hmm. and i'm like okay well then maybe then let's try the opposite thing maybe it's not the waves maybe it's a piece of the wave so i made a little moat and tried to get the water to stop and the water wouldn't stop in the moat and i sent him pictures of this and after like an hour i was like listen i've been here for an hour um here's all the list of things i tried here's my process for how i went and divided the and conquered all this space uh i'm not i'm not i'm not succeeding how the hell would you do this and he replied back one sentence that i remember he's like i would have walked up put my foot in the waves felt that this was a task beyond me and turned around and went home and said i don't have to i i cannot make the waves stop I'm going to go home and attack a problem I can actually fix. So why don't you just burn an hour attacking a problem that was unsolvable, right? That you knew from the beginning was unsolvable. That's ego right there. The unwillingness to say, this is a problem beyond my means, capacity, or skills. Mm. I need to ask how to go about this instead. And wow. that worked to me to just put me through a bunch of other questions like that and disassemble all these catch moments where I buckled in and doubled down and rather just being like, I don't know. Right. I remember it was like a month later when he asked me something and I said, I don't know how to do that. And he's like, finally, finally, <laughs> you finally just admitted to me up front the moment I suggest something that is way out of your skill set that you don't know how to do it. That's the most beautiful mm -hmm. thing I've heard from you since we met. Racing, mm. I don't know. I want you to even go into situations now. I want you to go to a party. When someone asks you how to do something you know how to do, tell them you don't know and ask them how they would approach it. How did you learn? Ooh, I a ton that year. Ooh, yeah, great. That's I've I've seen this happen a lot of times with people when it, it could be with design or anything where they they feel like their cups are already full, right? They got all the information yeah. and you, yeah. they can't learn anything because like I've got it, I've got it all figured out, I got it all, I don't need anything else, I've got all the information I need, and also you know whatever, I still can't solve this problem. It's unsolvable, like there, and that that combination the. I can see from the direction of going, I don't know if you really don't know something, but to actually, when you do know something to actually go, you know what? I think it's a chance for me to continue to learn here and to yeah. ask that question, even when you don't know, 
is I mean, it seems like the sign of a true master of, of being able to, to be able to keep keeping that cup be empty. Uh, there's well, a quote here, around. Um, I want I want, I want to just stop yeah, you real quick. Yeah, 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 of a cup, right? When you let the ego out of the cup, there's more room for other things, mm-hmm. right? You can then grow your can also grow your cup, right? There's a different yeah. way of approaching it. Yeah, that's yeah, like the uh, the on the on the point with that quote was coming to mind is like. We question everything except for the things we truly believe, those things we never question. Yeah. And that same kind of point, you're like, oh, I know how to do this. I know how to, I know how to design, da, 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 or whatever right. it might be. Um, but to, to create that space in your mind and also the, the humility of, of to say you don't know. And it feels like a part of that is that wisdom of being able to, to take that time and reflect and, and see you, what else can I learn in the situation? How else can I evolve? What else can I do? We were, again, we had a mini podcast before this podcast where we That's were true. talking about this concept about, you know, what one person can do with a pen and a paper or boxes and squares, not someone else can because they're constantly looking at that. And, and it's been fun to be able to see what can masters do with boxes, shapes and squares to be able to clearly yeah. communicate something in a way because there's like that depth of continuing, you know, meditating, close your eyes and think of nothing. Oh, that's simple. But some people do that for 40 years on top of a mountain. and They still go deeper, you know. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So on that, like looking at this, when you're talking about keeping your cup empty, right? And, mm-hmm. and constantly learning and going through that process, when you go to approach these situations with design, right? How do you, what is the mindset you get in for this? Is it, do you come with an empty cup? Do you do the human centric design where you interview people mm. or what is, you know, when, when you're doing, I, do you, do you feel like you're still able to keep that empty cup mindset as you approach problems that you've maybe solved a hundred times? Mm. Well, there's a few things, right? There's nothing wrong with relying on skills you developed. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, my mom used to say, uh, life is about balancing courage and consideration. And if you're too considerate, you need to be more courageous. And if you're too courageous, you need to be more considerate, right? And if you grow in both, everyone wins. Um, and I think there's a lot of truth in that, right? There was a study done years ago about the most, the mindset of the most successful and the least successful people. And they found that they both had the same mindset, believe it or not, same mindset. Um, and that was uh, willingness to do things for the sake of others. The difference between the most successful and the least successful uh, was that the most successful also balanced it with a healthy amount of self-interest, right? Um, whereas the people who only ever who only ever got average focused mm. only on self-interest to the to the neg- negligence or neutral level uh, consideration of others, right? Um, and so I think it's the same way when you come into design. You need to understand what you want out of the situation and what the player wants out of the situation. If you can achieve and satisfy both of those in equal measure, you're going to do great. Uh, if you only think about yourself, you're going to be average. You're going to be mediocre because mm. you're making the game you want to make. You're making the product you want. That'll work for the people who want what you want or like who you are. But if you can push the vision you want and bring and bring in the space and opportunity for others to enjoy it as well, you're going to go way further, right? Um, Love that. Also, I do notice we have a comment here. Uh, oh, yeah. can, I, uh, can I read it out here? Yeah, read it out here. I'll put it on the screen as well. All right. Oh, hello there. Hi, Amber. Good to see you. <laughs> wow. Uh, Amber is one of the first people I met here when I moved to uh, Los Angeles or well, oh. Southern California way back in the day and was one of the first people to really make me feel welcome here um, outside of work. Like She's one of the first friends I made outside of like Blizzard uh, coworkers. So 
Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. I, I, I think I, I believe I went uh, to school with Amber back in the day. It's been a minute. That's hey, amazing. Amber. Hi. Yeah. Welcome to the show. So glad yeah. you could make it. Yeah. <laughs> Let us know if you have any questions. I know it. Um, that's cool. It's, it's, it's funny how worlds collide like that, right? When people come yeah. across and you can play that game of like Kevin Bacon, seven degrees of separation kind of thing. Yeah. Seven so. degrees of uh, separation from Amber Janine Casado. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. I had another question come in that someone was watching. They actually sent me a, a text message off to the yeah. side. They're like, wow, what's going on? And I saw that. And I don't know if you can answer this, but I'm going to throw it out. I'm going to throw it out uh, the way that uh, he asked it is he said, which is interesting, I don't know, how, how many hours, how many man hours to make League of Legends or World of Warcraft profitable? I, oh, I don't man. know how you want to answer that, but however you want to try to dissect that, please, uh, I would be curious. He would be curious as well. I'm going to start with, um, I'm going to start with some numbers and I want you to just think about this, right? Um, if you have a million dollars, you can give 10 really intelligent people, um, basically orders for a year, right? And basically hire 10 people for hundred K. Um, and, uh, if you think of what a million dollars can do and what really you're asking what it can 10 recently intelligent people, right. Uh, who are kind of skilled in some specialized area can do in one year. Mm. Um, when you ask, uh, you know, what does a game like world of Warcraft take to create, um, you guys need to think about the fact that it's been live for what, 15 years now, just over 15. Right. Mm. And it was in development for 10 years before it got to market. Um, so I was there at the end of Brown Box, but I was in the friends and family, uh, alpha, right. And back then, um, it was, uh, still, it was easily close to a hundred people. So think about a hundred people, right. And let's say that that averaged out to 50 per year for 10 years, right. So you're immediately looking at $5 million a year, right. Um, mm. for 50 people not to mention all the infrastructure, right? And then 10 years, right? Uh, you're looking at uh, half a billion dollars, right? If the money put into it, right? Fit, right? It's just, um, wait, did I do the math on that incorrectly? Let me check. So million, million is 10, mm -hmm. 50 million is 50, or five, yeah, 5 million is 50. Yeah. So $50 million to get started, right? Mm -hmm. Cool, great. Now let's think about all the infrastructure, all the details that went into it, right? And that got it, that got it on the off the ground, right? So everyone looks at that and it's like, cool, $50 million and all that stuff worked. But here's here's the thing that they don't reveal, right? People also work their asses off for 80 hour weeks, 100 hour weeks in some cases, right? People put a ton of dreams and passion into it, right? That can't be easily quantified on top of it. Um, so if we, let's say we 10X that number, right? And just say, you know, okay, so not um, 5 million for 10 years, but uh, you know, let's just say it was half a billion dollars. All right. Maybe that's reasonable in terms of the real human effort, the losses, the side effects, whatever. Great. All right. Um, cool. Now we're in the ballpark money wise of what it takes to get something like this started. Right. Um, but that's not the only cost of a project like World War. That might be the, okay. The number you have to overcome, you have to make a billion dollars, more than 500 uh, million dollars in sales to be profitable. Okay, great. Now we're in the profit space. You also need to think about all of the 
intellectual, emotional engagement that people had to invest in the product, the world, the time, et cetera, for it to be capable of having that level of stickiness, right? That they needed to care about the world, they needed to care about the orcs and the humans. They needed to be committed to the interest of like why the undead are roaming around the world. And then you're looking at, you know, 15 years before that of products from Warcraft 1 to Warcraft 2 to Warcraft 3 and their emotional investment in all of that past. So at that point, if you really want to know what it takes to make a game profitable, you need to look at all the people who played those games, the level of hours they spent in those games, the time and cost of that from their own lives, and then their willingness to share and radiate that joy from the past to others in a community that then got them to come try this new product, World of Warcraft. And then you actually understand the true cost of what it takes to make a game that successful, right? Mm. Because just like it's more than just the development cost, it's also the emotional interest, it's the intrigue and so on. It's same thing with League of Legends, right? Mm. Why is League of Legends so sticky? Well, there was some development cost to it. It was probably less than well, easily, right? But the players who came in early played it with friends and created shared experiences. And that snowballed into let's bring more friends in. And then the difficulty of the game required people to have be mentored by other people playing the game. You couldn't just jump in and learn from nothing. It was incredibly hard. That created YouTube communities and that created tutorials and that created, you know, a sense of community and investment. And then esports came out and that gave you the goal. And, it's, and now we look at worlds, right? Which is, you know, I don't know how many thousand people sitting in an arena staring at 10 people who are frankly a bunch of lovable, adorable nerds sitting down and just playing a game for an, you know five hours back to yeah. back together. And you realize what this all took to create. And that when you can, uh, when you can tally the whole, then you really understand what it takes to make something that successful. Um, it's not an easy answer, but it's far more than development costs. Yeah. So um, go ahead. Last thing, I'll, I'll just wrap on this. Yeah, so go, yeah, go for it. Right. Look at Among Us. Right. Among Us yeah. was developed for a year. It had been out for a while. What did it take to be successful? It wasn't the development cost. It wasn't the gameplay. It wasn't the art of Among Us. It was communities playing it together that made it successful. Mm, yeah. And Among Us VR just came out, by the way, by Shell Studios. Jesse I Shell. saw. I saw that the, uh, last night. I did not have a chance to jump in and play it, but I was yeah. like, "Oh, that's gonna that might actually be a success." I'm hoping. I'm hoping. Yeah, you know, well, uh, that it's, it's very curious. I, I saw a little bit of footage on it. It looks fun. Uh, I know Jesse makes good games. I've had him on the show, um, and yeah. uh, it's you know I'm sure there's a lot of TLC. But to me, there's too much like strife and drama of backstabbing. It doesn't for me. It doesn't it doesn't hit my buckets of feel good. But I know there is a huge yeah. plethora of people that that will enjoy it, and I, I will jump in anyways to go try it out for a little bit. But I might do it while peeping through my VR headset just a little bit to kind of be like, oh, what's going on here? Oh. So, <laughs> but you but you're talking right. There's there's so much of like, what does it take to keep people together as they build this about build this out, right? What does it take the emotional investment, the the sessions, the crying, the wandering, the hours of other gameplays, the the breakdowns, the deconstruction instructions the build the tear the burn that back down to build it up again to burn it back down to build it back up again like for you let me ask you like i mean on this point you know can you talk to me about something that might look reasonably simple to execute in terms of design but you've had to build it up and tear it down x amount of times and the emotional time energy investment it took to be able to make something yeah let me pick my favorite um little yeah. pet project um yeah and it's not pet battles in World of Warcraft, but that's a close second. Um, <laughs> the good one. It's actually the Burning Embers resource in Mists of Pandaria World of Warcraft. And mm. at the end, it was very simple. It was, as I push buttons, a bar fills up. Um, if I combo certain abilities together, the bar fills up a little faster. 
And when a chunk of the bar is full enough that one little fireball appears, I can cast one power, mm. right? Um, and I can bank up to three fireballs. Great. Um, and this is a very simple system at the end of the day, right? I fill a bar, I can keep filling, I can overfill it three times, and then I can spend a power, either a heal, a heavy nuke, a giant AOE, et cetera, um, back to back three times. So I can go heal, 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 mm -hmm. nuke, 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 AOE, 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 and technically also resurrect your pet. You don't do that multiple times in a row. Um, and, uh, you know, but getting to that solution took a very long time. Initially, what I did was this was a damage buff on you. And the hotter it gets, you start applying. Um, are you familiar with, you're very familiar with life tap, right? And how you push yes. button, hurt yourself, yes. right? And get mana uh -huh. back. I'm yep. like, that really works for the affliction guy. And it's okay. Like, I really loved the variant of it. You steal your pet's mana on the demon guy. But it didn't really make sense for the eternally burning guy. So like, what if the eternally burning guy is just hurting himself all the time? So what if I got rid of, of life tap and just put a dot on you that's refilling your mana bar continuously, right? And I'm like, interesting. Okay, so let's just go through that and mm. go out in the world and I'm just dying and I do nothing and I die. Well, that sucks. Okay, so it can't kill you. Maybe it can move you to one hit point and that stops. Okay, now you are fragile and you will die in one hit. That's no good either. Okay, what if this only takes effect after you've cast a bunch of spells? And I look back at Rumble, which was done by my friend Brian Feeney uh, in League of Legends. This button says, if you cast a spell, it's free, but it fills up a bar. When the bar fills up, though, you overheat. Your character stops being able to cast spells for a while. I'm like, what if I do overheat on this class? So when the bar fills up, you start hurting, and it basically hurts you for 20% of your health until you either stop casting or the you know effect goes away. Hmm. That was the next version. Well, we put it in. And uh, I put in a bunch of uh, front of this guy who was a big destruction warlock and he was super freaked out by all the changes. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. Embrace the freak out, just play it. Well, what happened is he would just be like, I'm always dying and I don't get why. I'm like, you see your character is literally on fire, right? Have you noticed anything? He's like, well, I've noticed I don't have a mana bar. I'm like, yeah, but when your mana bar fills up, you get hurt. He's like, that's weird. I'm doing the right thing, which is I push all my buttons. Why am I getting hurt? I'm like this, I've automated life tap for you and you're not happy that I've made it so you don't push life tap anymore because he complained about pushing life tap was one of his points of feedback. So I was like, ah, oh, this isn't working. Um, and so there's a, there's a really useful technique known as a mm. polarity flip, right? If something isn't working, try doing the opposite of it. So I'm like, what if when the bar is full, instead of punishing you, you can do something that's really useful. So I'm like, all right, let me just let you heal when the bar is full. Well, then it became about, well, I want to keep, I have to mash buttons to keep the hot going. So as soon as it cools off at all, it turned off. I'm like, well, let's make it chunky when you put, you can consume the heat and heal yourself kind of like this internal fire, right? <sighs> all right, cool. Well, that was exciting. And I'm like, cool. All right, this works. Now, shit, I've got to balance the game around the fact that I have a class that heals itself instead of hurting itself and the healing is free. Fuck. Okay, what can I do? So then I'm like, well, what if there's a huge cost to the healing? What if you're giving up something that is so compelling that healing looks subpar? And mm. everyone looks at me and I'm like, what the fuck are you going to do? And I'm like, I'm going to give them the biggest damage number in the game. And the design team looked at me like, Alex, you've lost it, but I want to see this tomorrow. And so I gave them a nuke that took four seconds to cast, okay? 
was, this was the first version of it. It was, uh, you remember, remember soul fire, right? It was like a mm -hmm. four second cast and you got a, a booster that brought it down to two and a half. Well, I'm like, this is going to be a four second cast and it stays there. But when it hits, it deals a quarter of a million damage. And this was Mr. Pandaria. So they were like, that's almost a full player helper. I'm like, yes. Like, there's no way this will work. I'm like, I don't care. Let's try this. We tried it. And all of a sudden, players were like, oh, holy shit, this button is great. I'm like, yes. They're like, but I can only cast it when you're full of fire. I'm like, all right, cool. But that means I can't heal. I'm like, uh-huh. So like, I can either survive or I can kill things. And they're like, that's interesting. That's compelling, right? Yeah. I'm like, all right, cool. So we figured out real quick that four seconds was way too high. We made it three. We made it from a quarter million damage to 200,000 damage, right? We're like, all right, can we make this fair? And then, you know, we allow, I eventually said, okay, we're a little lower than this, but you can cast three of them back to back. So you can do 450,000 damage, but that takes 12 seconds, which by the way, if you work it out, it's only a 50% damage increase over the core nukes you could do anyways. But you saw ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk. And then I realized, okay, I realized, oh, hey, this button gets way out of control when it crits. Going from 150K to 300K is too much. But if I half the damage of the ability and make it crit 100% of the time, it's always showing the yellow crit numbers. It's always the big scaled up numbers when it hits but it does the same down-balanced damage point. So now that it says casts at X time, always crits, increases damage a little bit from crit damage, and it worked. Oh, look at that. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Would you, well, well, thank you for walking me through that evolution of the thought process and the execution and the damage and trying to dial in to, to get that. And one of the things you talked about there, what that was great, is there's a, there's a terminology known as perceived value. Right. Yeah. The, there's a, the concept of the value the the number was right there. But if you you changed it to people want something that would 100 percent crit all the time, it's like, oh, yeah. well, this this thing's it's ten dollars, but it's, it's half off. Oh, wow. I'm saving half my money. Well, it technically was always ten dollars and we always have it half off. But, you know, it's OK. That same concept of perceived value and you buy having that 100 percent crit time and that there's that, that that feeling there's that feeling powerful inside of games. Right. And when you yeah. when you bomb someone with a giant burst damage and they go, yes, I'm powerful. Yeah. Even though it maybe isn't, uh, you can, the numbers are only slightly being tweaked. That feeling of powerful, you will sometimes give up uh, maybe positive benefits of the life health thing to feel powerful. You know, that last saving diving throw. Uh, that's, that's very cool, man. Can, can I throw a couple more nuances yeah. on there yeah, that totally, you, yeah. uh, PV players picked up on, but yeah. most players I know who are just PV and probably would have noticed. Um, we have two things. Uh, one, the crit, right? Because taking 150k and going to, you know, a half a million insta kills people, right, was unacceptable in PvP. But if it always crits, but it's a lower number, right? Mm -hmm. It's consistent. Also, we had this concept in the game known as resilience, which said reduces crit damage. Mm -hmm. So innately, the nature of this thing always critting created a made it less powerful in PvP, but still felt very impressive and impactful when it landed. Also, it had a lot of opportunity for counterplay because it was this long-ass spell, so you can interrupt them, interrupt break them, etc. And then finally, um, it also encouraged PvE players being like, I can guarantee a crit. If I have a, a trinket or a device that activates on critical hits, I can guarantee this thing happens with this rare button. And that was super useful. So it allowed it an empowered PvP or uh, PvE. Yeah. It was nerfed itself in PvE. Yeah. And that ended up making it a really stressful, high tension moment. 
I love that. And that's those those high tension moments, creating those tensions and the opportunity cost and the decision making where you have to make choices on what you do. And I mean, that's that's that elegant game design. And one of the things I really enjoyed about going through your course and 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 doing that is seeing that how do you get characters to make decisions? How do you make players to get decisions where you now have an opportunity cost on what you yes. you have to you have to make a choice? What are you gonna do? Are you gonna go, you know, try to take down the tower? Or are you going to go save a friend? Are you going to go, are you going to try to slay the dragon, but then the people might gank you at the same time, but, yeah. or are you going to try to push on the, the minions and collect gold and grind that up? These are opportunity costs that you have to trade out as you go through this. Yeah. So, and, and the C and the secret of legal legends, mm -hmm. most people can't correctly evaluate the actual value of a tower, a dragon, a level, a wave, a ally save. So they make what they, they they feel a sense of agency because it's not transparent to them this is definitely better than this and the answer is it's contextual it's context shift it might be better to keep your adc from giving up a thousand gold but it might be better to let a struggling support die to take a tower right and because players have to adapt and make their own set of value assessments and judgments there's a continuous sense of growth that wouldn't exist if it was completely transparent to them despite the fact that even if you use something like gold value, right, there usually is a clear decision. And as pro players get better and better and better, they realize, oh, this is the correct thing to do in this scenario. It's, be it's better to not mm. go for Baron at risk the enemy team will kill me. It is better instead to take a tower, heal up, and fight the team when they get there, right? Yeah. And that's when you've really got these master, these easy-to-learn, hard-to-master games, is they are clear in the outcomes, right? Mm. They show you the information you need to potentially make the decision, but the tension of would you be able to pull this off or not, or do you have the insight to understand the value of this or not, allows you to grow forever, right? I will never mm. be at that level to make pro-level decisions in League of Legends, and I'm at peace with that. But <laughs> yeah. the fact that most people never That's hit good. that cap means there's always something for them to learn and grow on. I love that. It's almost like a really highly high version of counting cards. Yes. Right. Where you're, exactly. you're going through that process. But it's at a it's at a multiple factors, almost to the way the point you have this internal AI system doing all the work and you have to go with your gut feeling, which is just the intuition, which is just complex calculations going on in the back of your head, that a master can do it. Their calculations are just better mm -hmm. because they've done it so many times. They go, I feel this, but they only feel that because they've done thousands of hours of gameplay yeah. and they just know in this one nuanced situation it, and they know they have a feeling for the refresh rate that if i dive in on baron at this moment i'll be able to crit or whatever it might be so yep, and i will live you know there's that mm. great sequence of faker jumping in and beating three characters back to back because he's like oh my, my cooldowns are all coming up and he goes in and does it and you look at it and you're like how did he know well, you're not the person who, you know, has done a thousand kicks uh, one time, but one kick yeah. a thousand times, right? He knew on that character from just having experienced it so much that he internalized that. And guess what? I'm sure he's died and lost and, you know, fallen many, many times, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, but yeah. Uh, I love that. Yeah. I love that. Um, I do want to shift and talk a little bit about something just because we were, we were before we talking about this and just a unique time that I'm doing things right now. So I produce virtuality applications and games. I went through your course. It's oh, amazing. Yeah. I recommend anybody uh, to go and check out his course. We'll talk about what that is at the end of the podcast, which is coming up here in a couple of minutes. But I actually applied some of your lessons into what I'm building. What I'm, I like to build virtuality applications 
that also cause human transformation for good. So I've done it for nonprofits okay. and entrepreneurs and, yeah. and different groups like that. And so one of the games I'm coming out with right now uh, is uh, an arena shooter uh, mm -hmm. that's got different modes, 1v1, 2v2, 3v3, even a MOBA mode that's mm -hmm. light MOBA, right? That's one half arena shooter with different three character class bases, but it's also one half meditation, which is mm. a weird concept, right? But the concept is really this, is that I've noticed that people get triggered when they play video games. As we know, when we go and we do battle inside mm. the arena, right? People get upset. There's toxicity. And a lot of times, I don't believe that people are necessarily bad. They just maybe don't know how to handle these situations. And so the concept is just around, let me get your take on this, is you go into the arena, you get triggered through doing struggles and strifes and things like that. And then you pop out of that. And then you go into a meditation where you can reflect on losses and learnings, mm -hmm. how to handle difficult conversations and really give you the tools that you need right when you need them to be able to handle the challenges that are in the arena, because a part of it is dealing with people in difficult situations and difficult times. And so we had this loop of really providing a place that allows people to get challenged and then allow people to recover and then reflect on what happened and then go into the battle in the arena again. And I'd love to get your thoughts on that as because I'm about to release this in two weeks or so. Um, and I'd love to get your take on it. Okay. Well, I want to talk a little bit about toxicity, actually, mm -hmm. um, and kind of three different forms of it. Sure. Um, and this actually started, I was playing with my friend Luke Frailer, and he's the CEO of Center Code, um, a QA company out of um, Lisa Viejo, one, one of my early friends here in Los Angeles. And um, after we played a game of League of Legends where I was jungler and I did really badly, he's like, Alex, you're so weird to play with. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I know I sucked. He's like, no, no, no. You get so mad at the in the game. You get mad at yourself. You're not mad at anyone else. You don't blame anyone else for what's going on. You get so upset when you fuck up. It's wild, right? Um, and you're just sitting there and stewing or apologizing or whatever. He's like, do you realize that? I'm like, I guess. I don't know. Maybe. He's like, well, you know, um, it's funny because I think that the way you process, you still go through the same venting as other people do but you vent on yourself as opposed to venting on others. And I've noticed that a lot of people who vent the most are either, um, one, they're people who suck themselves and are deflecting by picking someone else out and be like, you did this thing wrong, not to, to draw attention away from or deflect from their own failures, right? Um, the second one is the ones who just feel bad and want others to feel bad. Um, and the third one are the ones who feel powerless, like they've lost a sense of control and agency because of the actions of others, right? Um, and he's like, you know, I think if more people realize which one of those three feelings they're having, um, I did poorly and I feel bad, I am feeling bad and I don't want others to, I don't want to feel the shame, so I'll put the shame on someone else first, or man, this was out of my control and the things I could do to improve this wouldn't have resulted in a win. And I'm frustrated by that. If they were able to just have that conversation of where they are before they said anything, it, they would either be a lot more chill or they would have to be pretty, pretty torn up to continue it with writing whatever it is that they wrote. You know, mm -hmm. I always thought about that because I, I feel like, um, you know, because it's a team game, right? Everyone contributes 10% to the game, 10 50% from your team, 50% from the other team, right? You have no more than 5% control, right? Let's say over a good game and a bad game, right? Max, right? 5% of what you brought with you, 5% of how you performed in the game. Um, and if you 
expect to have full control over the win or the loss, you're insane. You don't, you have, you do, you have lost the ability to weigh your own impact in a situation. So when I sit and I think about a game that says, Hey, I just finished this game and I, and then the game may last me, well, how are you feeling? Happy about that? Angry about that? Whatever. Um, this actually goes back to a lesson from the same guy who sent me to the beach. He's like, Alex, um, you got really happy when I complimented you on saying you don't know. And now you've started saying all the time, that's cool. But can you get to a point where even my validation is something you just acknowledge and move on from like, oh, thanks. And then it doesn't elevate your emotions the same way being told that sucks doesn't depress your emotions, right? I'm like, that seems weird. Why would I want to do this? He's like, because then you've truly let go of the control of either validation or criticism, right? Mm -hmm. And so the same way, if I was to go in a game like that, I'm like, here, here were your stats. How are you feeling about this? I'm feeling positive about this, I'm feeling negative about this. All right, would you? are you in a comparative mood or are you in a self-reflective mood? All right, show me a self-reflective mood. Here are your stats on this the last five times you played this character. You had this win rate, this hit rate, this miss rate. Guess you're on an upward trend right now. Are you aware of that? tell you that like maybe when you're in angry mode and be like, Hey, I feel really good to know. Oh, do you know your performance is actually not as good? Why do you feel more positive about it this time than you did last time? And just make themselves aware of like where they are. And then maybe their comparative mood, show them, Hey, here's the other person, the other team and uh, this team, are you aware that they, your, their equivalent role was killed five, 10 times more, three times more than yours was. Maybe the reason you succeeded was actually your teammates, right? And giving them just these little prompts based on their performance inside the shooter for that meditative window could be very intriguing. Mm, I love hard that. To collect all that information, hard to Super make hard. decisions, but yeah. interesting. It, it, it's well, it's also something that you're talking about two sides of the well, there's multiple angles here. One of these, the initial piece was you're talking about and the things that we're dealing with. Well, one is rage, right? And rage is rage is usually towards other people for the most part. And so one of the things we're working on is how to turn rage into gratitude through a process that we, we bring them through. Another one we have is, is shame and guilt and turning it into courage and compassion, right? And the shame is, is usually me raging on myself versus me raging on you, which is two of yeah. those top pieces, right? And the other one being yeah. is that feeling of powerlessness of not knowing how to communicate to people. I've had situations when we were testing this out and putting things through where people felt powerless because people were poking them a bit that they would then do huge bursts, right? They, they would do that nuke crit damage and they would just go extreme. It would just be verbally extreme yeah. to the point where uh, they said as horrific as you could imagine type of things that would just come out of the mouths because they said, I feel so powerless. The only way that you'll listen is with boom. And they would explode it because they didn't yeah. know how to communicate that. So those are those, those those different pieces that you're talking about that I've witnessed. And so I completely resonate with that. What I love about the other piece is bringing it to their awareness of where they're at, being able to say, because you're talking about emotional regulation, awareness, and then emotional regulation. But the way that you're helping them regulate is helping them shift that perspective a bit when you're talking about, by the way, are you wearing that you only have 5% of the control of the game because there's 50 of this? Or do you wear the other players of this? And so you're having that logical brain starting to kick in of the situation, yeah. helping shift that narrative where it could be like, you know, uh, we lost because of me and it's all my fault. I'm a terrible human and everybody hates me, right? Let's just say, yep. and now um, with everyone's fear inside of a game and outside of a game is, and then they'll kick me out of the tribe and then I'll die, right? Which is yep. it's old as time, divorces and all that fun stuff. What I love about that is you're using data and stats to help people kind of re-kick in and go, hey man, um, 
no, not that. Here's this. Here's where we're at. Do you realize how many times it takes for this to happen? And and so I mean, I think we could throw in some some. I think it's a good it's a good place to get towards, and it'd just be a good thing to look at the facts of what facts could you put in place of understanding whatever the conditions they're at. What data would they need to see to help yeah. reframe their mindset to kind of help them shift into a more uh, non-reactive state? And what you're talking about that sense of non-reactiveness. I'm not reactive to to the judgments or to the praise and being that total like and that's true power, right? Is is not having because I um, I I did a lot of a. Uh, coaching using virtual reality with kids in prison and things like Ooh, that. We did stuff like okay. that. Fun yeah. stuff, long conversation. I did over it. Uh, but um, they talked about what's power. The power is like, if I, if I know your hot buttons and the fact that you're, um, I don't know, whatever it is, you might be here, you're, you're dumb. Picking on my just mom. Ask, yeah, pick your mom. See your mom. If I know if I say your mama and then you go and swing, I have the power because I push a button, you do a thing. I push sure. a button, you do a thing. You have no power. But true power is the ability to choose to respond, not just react. And so when someone pushes the button, you go, oh, I see you push my button. Nothing happened. I have that power. And when you recognize that versus my nailed at the ego of saying, hey, you, know, you, you talk about my mama, I, I'm going to get you, right? Mm -hmm. That is, is a really powerful thing. So helping, if, helping people, anybody, recognize that their true power comes to be non-reactive to any situation and choosing what to do, I think, is a, is a beautiful concept. I appreciate yeah. you bringing that into my awareness. It's okay. Um, well, you're glad it helped. I mean, you know, and here's the thing. You can still choose to swing after you've stopped yourself from needing it. Right? <laughs> yeah. You can still make the choice. Like, no, this time yeah. the price is worth it and swing. You can uh, also say, no, this is not worth it and not swing. But if you don't have that choice, you were the puppet. And that's do, beautiful. I mean, do you, do we... Do you, um, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Go you know, ahead. we, we walk a great path in life, right. Between courage, compassion, thinking about ourselves, thinking about others. Right. And to believe, you know, that there is a perfect way to do things is simply untrue. Right. And, mm. and you need to be able to forgive yourself, right. For the mistakes you make and also forgive others for the mistakes they make and be able to say when no, that many, that series of mistakes has crossed the line and we're disengaging. Right. Um, and I think if people remembered that, that we're all on this different spectrum of light, essentially, right? And we're going to be in different places. And we can sometimes try to be more benevolent. And sometimes we are so benevolent, we need to be a little more selfish. Um, and trying to figure out what the others mm -hmm. need and help them get there. We just all benefit, right? And yeah. life gets better. People learn and grow. And we'd see more interesting things in life, you know? Like, um, have you ever heard the, uh, you've probably heard this one. You know the story of the elephant and the rider? Um, I, mm, a long time ago, but I don't remember the, I don't remember it. Yeah. All right. I'm going to, I'll tell the story. It's pretty quick. Sure. So, yeah, let's do it. um, the, uh, a foreigner, well, foreigner, we'll say an American American is visiting um, sure. a mountain pass in India. Mm -hmm. And, uh, as they're going through a mountain pass, uh, this man atop of a giant elephant, uh, is coming through the pass and the elephant takes up the whole pass. The guy has to, you know, it's like, oh, there's an elephant coming, scurries back into a little bypass the elephant you know, walks, shakes off, sits down, takes a break. And the American goes to the elephant rider and is like, wow, that's amazing. How do you command such a majestic, large, and powerful beast? Um, what, what is to keeping the elephant from just running away or doing whatever it is and plummeting off the side or going wherever it wants to? And so the elephant rider says, well, you're right. I'm, I'm weaker than the uh, elephant. Um, maybe I'm not, maybe not even smarter than the elephant, 
Um, I'm also definitely can't, you know, um, out, you know, I can't turn the elephant around if he decides to turn around. Um, I, the reason we stay on the path is the elephant doesn't want to fall down. Right. Yeah. Um, and the reason we go where it wants is because I give it motivation to get to the next campsite. We feed it when we get there, et cetera. Now, ignoring all the bits about, you know, abuse and training elephants and all that. Um, the, the simple story is that that's actually a story of intelligence and emotion, right? We, the mm. intelligent part of our bodies, is the rider atop the elephant. If the elephant gets out of control, it's going to rampage. And no amount of strangling and trying to overpower the emotions is going to get the emotions in line, right? The best you can do is chill it out, calm it, and then once you've made a mess of things, turn around and course correct. Now, again, that's not saying running around rampaging is okay. It's not saying that allowing your emotions to get out of control is okay, right? But rather that... We shouldn't expect ourselves to be emotionless, devoid beings, but mm. rather to acknowledge when we are being emotionally activated, saying, okay, I'm angry because of this. This anger is going to seethe for a bit, and then it's going to go away. And then just go through that and acknowledge that. Allow it to be what it is. Don't can it. Don't pretend it's something that it isn't. And then you can, then once the emotion is calmed down, allow you to make the correct decision with the intellectual part of your brain, right? And different people yeah. have different strengths of elephants and different experiences of riders. The best we can do is try to get better at understanding what kind of elephant we're riding, when it's going to go crazy, and mitigate the consequences, and then get better at you know navigating the elephant and avoiding situations that the elephant's going to get reactive in. That's it, right? That's how we as human beings work atop of this giant biological hardware that is designed to fight fuck and you know flee right that's it that's all our bodies want to do maybe add food in there but um right survival is not the bar anymore though it's our lives are not about can we survive or not can we have children or not can we run away or not the answer is yes in almost all situations in modern life it's instead can we cope with the emotional hardware of our brain to a degree mm. that it no longer gets in the way of our intellectual pursuits passions and desires so yeah. master your elephants. Master elephants. I love it. I love it. And it's right because people think that we're thinking machines that feel, but we're really feeling machines that think. And yeah. it was really about the fact that we use, we're supposed to have our, our brains be in service to our feelings and our desires, but sometimes we become a slave to our feelings and desires to the point where it runs out of control. But knowing your elephant and knowing how to embrace that elephant inside you gives the ability to, to be able to steer it and embrace it and be with it as the time calls for it yeah that's awesome yeah um that was beautiful i love it i wish um, i could I know say i wrote it i certainly didn't <laughs> it's a quote quote uh, so i'm um, getting getting towards the end of the here um i've got yeah. uh two two questions for you here and we'll wrap this up right let's do it um with all the things that you've done right you've run on the journey you've gone around the bend again in the world of design and and all the things that you've created what is your holy grail what is what is the flag you hope to achieve um, by making the courses and the designs mm -hmm. and everything that you do, is there is there a flag in the sand of the top of the mountain that you hope to achieve through all the efforts that you put into life? I have two. Uh, one, I hope to play the games by the people I've taught and seeing that they're enjoyable and better for half of my life, my, me having existed in the world. Uh, ideally playing those games with my own kids. Um, and then the second one is to build a team with people who share the values and the insights, right? That I've, I've the framework I've set out here so we can make great products together. Um, and so I'd say those are the two flags. I'm not sure which one's before the other. 
Um, mm. But if either one happens, I feel like I'll be at peace with the life that I lived. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd say that's it. Beautiful. That's beautiful. I'll I'll, uh, I'll share a link later on with this. <laughs> I have gone through your course, and so I think it's great. Uh, the the other one being is with either one to answer the other piece of this hero's journey piece. If that's the holy grail, if that's the flag in the sand, say to say have people um, be able to play the games of help you uh, the people you've taught along the path. What's the dragon? What do you think is the most difficult thing? for people to achieve that so that you can actually get that reward what is the dragon facing you on that one actually i think at this point the dragon's out of my hands right um mm. i've kind of provided the tools possible i've supported the people and you know um i i gotta admit i've kind of had one hit of the uh of the reward from that first one right mm. um there was a young man named ali alwasiti uh who worked with me on a game project when i first left riot oh, um man. and in the in the time that um, we worked together, um, he uh, he and his father needed to free uh, flee. Uh, I believe it was Iraq at the time, and so I gave them enough money. Like he was working to save up for him. Like here's just a amount of money, get to Canada, and they did. They got out of Canada just a few about like a month or two before they couldn't get out anymore. And um, I just found out that he shipped a game called Ember Knights uh, just a few weeks ago. And I got to sit down and play it. I'm like, oh, cool. shit, this is a really good game. <laughs> and he eventually came back and, and didn't, you know, and he actually worked uh, worked off that month that I had extra, basically it was extra few grand, right, um, for his father and him to get out. And uh, I look back at that and it's like, you know, all right, well, this wasn't necessarily someone that I, you know, mentored, but I got to help out and see that their life went on to be something better. And he and his father are in a better place. Um, so yeah, and then for the second one, uh, the other dragon I would say, right, for starting another company, right, I've launched my own game a few times, uh, a couple times, I started a company. Um, and honestly, right now, it's kind of like overcoming a bit of burnout um, and just exhaustion. I had a five-year project that I've just, you know, left. And now it's sort of like, well, what is the next thing I want to do with a decade of my life? It takes five to eight years to ship a project the scale I like to work. Um, so for me, I think it's, finding that own internal sense of healing and recovery, um, as well as finding the allies that I wanted to go through that journey with. There's a few people I know I would with, and they're all tied up at the moment. Um, so yeah, I think that's it. It's it. It's always gathering a crew and then leaning into the storm, right? So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you need the right crew to set sail. You, you know what it takes across those seas. So yeah, there, there's beautiful. a cute little thing. Um, they did a study of like, genius people who uh are what do they call it uh not genius people it was um what do they call the people who are like prima donnas right they're the oh savant. uh proteges or um savants, I believe. savants, like savants, yeah. savant developers and they're like oh well we'll take a savant developer from this company put them in this company and we'll do great inevitably they fail the only time that actually happens is when they transfer with enough of their team that they can recreate the culture that they were a savant within so it's not mm -hmm. individuals who create, make the savants successful. It's the team that creates the context where the savants' talents are brought out. Yeah. And that's the magic. Yeah, yeah. It takes a village. I love it. Yeah. That's beautiful. Beautiful. And so with all of that being said, and it's yeah. been an epic time rapping with you, sure. is there anything else you'd like to let people know about before you tell them how to get a hold of you? Oh, yeah, a couple of things. Uh, one, I teach game design to people over at uh, gamedesignskills.com. I'm sure you'll put a link up. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a course, we actually have first to three courses, where we teach you how to understand the problem solving 
steps in game design. You took the course. What was your favorite module of the eight? Do you remember one that jumped out of you? Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the one that stood out to me that I really enjoyed was uh, was the clarity. It was one of the, one of the first yeah. ones because clarity is the currency of game design, which is Beautiful. one of my favorite quotes from you. So, yes. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, uh, that's one I learned because I made a lot of unclear shit in my time, right? It's only once I realized that I was basically burning checks that I couldn't cash, right? Um, the second thing is I'm working on my own little podcast. We only do one episode a month, but we work with experts like people who have been in the fray and usually have not been interviewed before from the game development industry called the Funsmith Fireside Chats. You can find that at gamedesignskills.com forward slash blog uh, or just check my Twitter. It's linked there. Um, and I'm really looking forward to the next one. It's actually with Brian Feeney, of, uh, who was the game director of Wild Rift. He, along with Christine Norman, um, person I worked with before another Project Riot, um, shipped this really awesome mobile adaptation of League of Legends. He goes into the whole process of prototyping and how to prototype games more effectively using, and this is a guy who I would wander in the office at like four in the afternoon on a Saturday to pick up a drink or food or whatever from the cafeteria. And he would just be sitting there with yet another game project. Um, and uh, there's a long time we didn't know if he was going to make it the company because he was just burnt at all axes. And now he's a game director for one of the most successful uh, mobile adaptations on the market. So I love it. I, I have Wild Rift on my phone right now. And yeah. so <laughs> it's better than League, right? It's better controls. It's better built. There's fewer characters. They're, the skills are redesigned for mobile. Like they just nailed it. And I'm consistently impressed. I love it. I love it. And so uh, that's great. And then we'll put a link up inside there. I don't know if it's inside the bio that you sent, but we'll make sure we get one onto the uh, Heroes of Reality website. So anybody that wants to, they can click on that link and go there and be able to click through that. Um, and um, with that being said, and if people want to get a hold of you, I mean, I think you named a couple of places. What's the best way for people to do that? Sure. The best one is to just hit me up on Twitter, uh, if it's still alive in here, uh, mm -hmm. with at Zelnath. If not, I'm on <laughs> all the other social media at the same thing. Um, and uh, they can also email me, uh, Zelnath, at uh, gamedesignskills.com. Uh, and my either me or one of my coworkers uh, will be happy to answer any questions they have. Love it. Alexander, thank you so much for your time, brother. I appreciate uh, you coming to the show. appreciate your time and playing full out, man. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Uh, thank you so much, and I'll see you on the other side, brother. Sounds great. And send me a link to your game when it's out. Will do. All right, take care now. Cheers, Bye. Dylan. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes. While you're there, you can also take the Heroes quiz to find out what kind of hero you are. Or if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast, tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.